The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. It's been a couple of weeks now, Scott, but how was Games Expo? <laughs> it's been a couple of weeks, I can't remember. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> no, it was really good. Um, it was knackering. You ran uh, a lot of games. I ran seven games out of the eight slots, and that was all in a row. Well, not all in a row, I did get to sleep in between some okay, of them. But, yeah, um, yeah I, it, it, was, it was really good. I mean, it's a, a great convention, particularly if you want to go there and do some shopping. I mean, the, the trade hall is absolutely massive. Uh, you know, there's plenty of um, plenty of new stock out on display. There's plenty of demos to play, plenty of interesting people to meet, and yeah, you get to play games too. Do you think it was busier than last year? Do you think any idea how many people they had? They had a you, you know in the, in the low thousands last year. I think it was two or three. I thought yeah, you know, I think well, I think it was something like five thousand last year. Actually, really, it's pretty good. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how many it was this year, and I don't know whether it was busier or not because last because you year, were running games all the time. Exactly. Well, yeah. last year when I went, I went for the day on the Saturday, and it was absolutely heaving. Uh, this time on the Saturday, I spent the whole time running games, and I didn't go into the trade hall at all, so I can't compare. Yeah, yeah. But I'd be surprised if it was much quieter. Yeah. I would have loved to go because I remember for the, the one year I have made it there, the trade hall was pretty impressive. Uh, but I'm saving my money for the even bigger trade hall at Gen Con. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing quite competes with the size of the trade hall at Gen Con. No. I went to Norwich instead, just so you know. And did you have a good time there? I did have a good time. I found a little game shop up a little side alley run by a guy from Toronto. Okay. It seems like most people in Norwich came there 30 years ago for like a fortnight and then stayed. That it's, seemed to be... Uh, that's the one up the side street. It's a little way around the corner from uh, the one, one of the best named pub of, pubs I've found in a while called the Hoggin Armour. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, it's on the corner of Brook, uh, round by just before you get to the church. Going. Okay, for, so it's kind of road. on this like little cobbled street. Is yeah. where the, yes, yeah, so there was a great second-hand bookshop that I went in um, and got talking to some guy about... Carlos Castaneda and um, Lobsang Ramper and all that. And then I came out and I must have been so engrossed in that conversation that I walked straight by the game shop and had to come back and find it. But yeah. So Norwich, very good. Yeah. I, I used to Recommend. go gaming. I used to go gaming in the Hoggin Armour. So I know that part of town. A very appropriate name for a gaming pub. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and in this evening's episode, we're going to be discussing H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Shadow Out of Time. Once again, as well, we'll be discussing the gaming aspects of it, but we probably won't get to do that until next episode. This time, we're actually planning to split this in two. We're not, we're not going to let ourselves get surprised by how much we talk. So we're actually planning for this to be two episodes, so that probably means it's going to be four. It's one of his longer stories, and I think we're going to give a synopsis of the story, but within that we're going to discuss um, the context and our interpretations of it and ideas that spin off of that. So it's... Um, Hopefully not just going to be a regurgitation of the, of the story. 
and the occasional whine from me complaining, why was it so goddamn long? But before we get on to that, And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This episode, our Lovecraftian word of the uh, week, is elder. Fairly regular word in many contexts, like one can have an elder brother or whatever. Yeah, but Lovecraft uses it, I mean, he uses it almost exclusively as an adjective, and he uses uses it a lot. I've got uh, a text file of the complete works of Lovecraft, and so, you know, when when we're preparing these episodes, I tend to go through and do searches on particular words. And, yeah, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of hits for Elder, and it seems to be one of his most used adjectives. And I think most of that is, you know, down to, you know, things like uh, The Mountains of Madness, where there's lots of references to elder things. But that's not the only way he uses it. But before we get into that, what does elder mean? Well, in the most literal sense, the word elder could be used to describe a community or religious leader, or someone who is simply older than you. There's no one older than me. Well, I was looking at you, but the microphone wouldn't have got that. <laughs> <laughs> and Lovecraft mostly used it as, uh, used it as an adjective, um, comparative of old, older, greater than another in age or seniority. Similarity. Yeah, but mm. I, I think with Lovecraft, yeah, it's another one of these words that he almost seemed to use reflexively in his descriptions. Uh, th- there seem to be any number of adjectives, I've made this point before in some of our other words of the week, where he just seems to use it almost as much for the sounds or because he thinks that you know, that noun looks lonely without an adjective and so you know, he needs to put something in front of it. And I think older is very much one of these things that you know, he just throws in you know, for the sound of it. I, mean, I think it implies superior, um, Respect more ancient elders. in some ways, sort of, sort of superior, sort of unknowable almost in the way he seems to use it like yes. the older things yeah or, or from and a bygone age from a yeah an age that that uh, we can no longer quite yeah. comprehend exactly. that's been kind of lost to us yes. it's more than just older to give some examples from lovecraft from the shadow out of time a certain positive terror grew on me as we advanced to this actual sight of the elder world behind the legends A terror, of course, abetted by the fact that my disturbing dreams and pseudo-memories still beset me with unabated force. And from the Dunwich Horror, His wilder wanderings were very startling indeed, including frantic appeals that something in a boarded-up farmhouse be destroyed, and fantastic references to some plan for the extirpation of the entire human race and all animal and vegetable life from the earth by some terrible elder race of beings from another dimension. From the dream quest of unknown Kadath. And there were caves in that mountain which might be empty and alone with elder darkness, or might, if legend spoke truly, hold horrors of a form not to be surmised. And now let's take a look at the history of The Shadow Out of Time. Shadow Out of Time is one of Lovecraft's longer stories, and one of his latest stories, similar in length to Whisper in Darkness or Shadow Over Innsmouth. Yeah, it's about 27,000 words, if I remember correctly. So it's quite a sizeable piece. Written in 1934-35, published only about a year before Lovecraft's death. Published in Astounding Stories, 
The one thing admittedly I did quite like about this, finding the cover for Astounding Tales. That is a that is a lovely piece of artwork. It's a pretty good um, interpretation of his description as well. Yeah, in fact, if you've got the annotated H.P. Lovecraft, it's not only got the cover there, but it's got a number of the interior illustrations from that, that publication, mm. uh, done by the same artist, and uh, at least I think it's the same artist. And it's got an almost Alice in Wonderland feel to it. I, I like it. You know, the fact that it was in Astounding Stories is actually quite significant because you know, Lovecraft was pretty much synonymous with weird tales. Uh, almost everything that he wrote uh, and published within his lifetime was published in weird tales, with a few exceptions like um, Herbert Westry Animator. But yes, I mean, this was quite an exception in that respect, and it could be because this is one of Lovecraft's almost pure science fiction tales, and was, you know, you know, Astounding Stories was much more of a science fiction magazine than Weird Tales was. So whereas, you know, the Weird Tales readers might have been more open to, you know, the, the kind of spookier aspects of Lovecraft's more horrific tales, this one was probably more in the wheelhouse of something like Astounding Stories. In one of his letters, Lovecraft says... By the way, I finished Shadow Out of Time last week, but I doubt whether it is good enough to type. Somehow or other, it does not seem to embody quite what I want to embody, and I may tear it up and start all over again. So he never actually typed it up. His buddy um, uh, Barlow typed it up, you know, for, well, I don't know, so, so they could circulate around their circle, as I recall. So Barlow typed it up and made a few transcription errors, um, but that did enable it to get submitted to Astounding Stories. Uh, the editor of Astounding Stories then made some changes, and that was kind of how it existed for a long time. Until, and I think this is a great story, that in the mid-90s uh, it, was, it was found in uh, somebody's, you know, among somebody's papers, the original book that was uh, written in a, a school um, exercise, exercise book. Yeah. Uh, in the kind of a cramped style, and you can see pictures of it. And I remember this in 1995, it, it being announced that it had been found. The HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast go into a lot more detail about this story, so if you want to know the full uh, picture, go and, go and look them up. But something that I felt at the time, and, and still felt until recently, was that, is it really that big a deal? Because... You know, aren't they going to be? Aren't they going to be finding other manuscripts and and so on? Why is this one so special? Well, and also there's the fact that you know what what can you actually talk about being the definitive version of a story anyway? And yes, all right, you can go back to Lovecraft's manuscripts and and you know see whether there were any minor changes there. But you know, if a story you know exists in multiple forms, you know, they, they, then you know each one can be viewed as its own thing very much. I mean, th th this is the case very much with, for example, some of Shakespeare's plays. That you know, in some cases, you know, like the Hamlet, there's three different versions of that. I mean, you know, which one can you say is the canonical one? But Lovecraft particularly commented that the version that appeared in Astounding Stories was somewhat corrupted and, and not quite correct. But he never went through and annotated a version of it as he did with some of his others. And the 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 fact is that um, Joshi comments that this is the only one of Lovecraft's sort of major significant works that they don't hold an original manuscript or typescript for. So that there aren't others to be found. This was the only one that was missing. Hmm. So the fact that they found it was, you know, amazing. Yes. Uh, yeah. And if I recall correctly, the people who found it, you know, they, they contacted Brown University and said, oh, we've got this, like, you know, book and do you want it? And I don't think they, you know, they don't think they looked to sell it or anything. They just passed it to Brown University, who hold all of Lovecraft's papers. So 
there it was and Joshi has um, put it together and gone through it and um, it's available in a in a book um, of its own with a introductory essay and lots of notes mm. having read it I'm not sure I got that much more out of it um, the, the format is different in that the first chapter when you read it in in most other versions the first chapter is broken up into lots of little bullet well not bullet points but lots of little short paragraphs whereas the paragraphs in the original were much longer I seem to remember Chris Lackey on the uh, HP uh, Lovecraft Literary Podcast actually making that point that uh, he didn't know the the history of this at first and that uh, he, he started reading the you know, one of the the edited versions where there were lots of short paragraphs mm. and thought this doesn't read like Lovecraft and then went off and actually you know uh, read the history of it and realised that that's what had happened. <laughs> yeah, why. I'm not quite sure if he was being a little humorous there though, Scott. I think, <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, credit all credit to him for uh, holding out and reading the original because I've got the original right here. Mm. Um, the corrected text. The corrected text. Mm. Yes, but like I say, having read both, there are there are a few. It's mostly sort of formatting errors of or formatting changes of paragraph length and fairly you know minor changes for the reader. I think there's a, a couple of little bits of additional text, but nothing that you would really uh, that really jumps out at me anyway. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a story that really needs to be longer. But another quote from Lovecraft around that time, uh, 1935, which doesn't really have a bearing on this story particularly, but on his other work, he says, It is the only story from the season 1934 to 35 when I wrote half a dozen things and destroyed all but a shadow out of time. What were the other five? Well, he, he didn't right. think much of this one. I mean, the others could have been great as well. Well, he was very critical of his own work after He all. was, but, you know, yeah. I think those things have been lost. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's like Franz Kafka, isn't it? Yeah, he, um, he wanted all of his work to be destroyed after oh, his right, death. Yeah, yeah. And he, he left instructions to his, his friend, the executor of his will, to destroy all his works afterwards. Mm. And his friend read through them and thought, no, I sold that and published them instead. And that's, <laughs> that's why we have Kafka's work in print. So, yeah, authors shouldn't be left to judge the merit of their own work. <laughs> They're not to be trusted. Not to be trusted. And now we move on to the story itself. After 22 years of nightmare and terror, saved only by a desperate conviction of the mythical source of certain impressions... I am unwilling to vouch for the truth of that which I think I found in Western Australia on the night of the 17th to the 18th of July, 1935. There is reason to hope that my experience was wholly or partly an hallucination, for which indeed abundant causes existed, and yet its realism was so hideous that I sometimes find hope impossible. So this is a typical Lovecraft uh, opening to the story. This is what happened. I can't believe it. And now I'm going to tell you all about it. It is reminiscent of thing on the doorstep yeah. to that degree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not just that, you know, I'm going to tell you all about it. It's that I'm going to tell you all about it at a fantastic degree of remove. Yeah. But, yeah this, this isn't a narrative. This is an autopsy. An autopsy stroke essay. Yeah, but it's addressed to his. I mean, he addresses it later to in a few pages to his son 
a person of the same name. <laughs> Virtually the same well, name. Well, almost, yes. I mean, the, yeah. the narrator of this story is Nathaniel Wingate Peasley. He is a lecturer in political economy at the Miskatonic University, or at least he is when he starts, and he has very unimaginatively named his son Wingate Peasley. <laughs> you moron, choose a different name! <laughs> Professor Wingate Peasley, though. Yes, who's also a lecturer at the Miskatonic University. Yes. <laughs> no wonder I got confused, wondering which one's which. Keeping it in the family. Well, it doesn't help that for a lot of the time Nathaniel Peasley isn't Nathaniel Peasley anyway, so that's even more confusing. I think we're explaining this really clearly, guys. Right. <laughs> anyway, our narrator, Nathaniel Wingate Peasley, has a happy home life. A, he's happy in his work, lecturing in uh, political economy. Until 1908, when he has a bout of amnesia, which lasts, what, five years? Yes. And it's a weird thing, because it starts pretty much in mid-sentence while he's giving a lecture, that it's almost like a seizure or a fit or something like that. He He kind of keels over and is unconscious for quite a few hours. And then when he comes round, he's all kind of different. Speaking very differently. Moving differently, as if he can't work out how his limbs work. And that, that's really quite a creepy thing, isn't it? I mean, you, know, I mean you, you can sort of imagine that someone looking at that initially might think, you know, maybe he's had a stroke or something like that, or, or an aneurysm. Yeah, there but, are medical explanations for that. Yes, but, but it's the fact that not just, you know, having trouble moving his limbs or having trouble, you know, willing himself into motion, it's the fact that everything just seems to be moving wrong. To be fair, that does describe me getting out of bed most mornings before <laughs> midday. Now, his wife leaves him pretty much straight away. She, she looks at him and knows that um, it's, it's not him or, you know, that, that he's changed in some way. It does say that physical strength returned at once, although I required an odd amount of re-education in the use of my hands, legs and bodily apparatus in general. Now, this just set me thinking, <laughs> he's a married man who doesn't know how to operate his body. He doesn't know how to go, does he know how to go to the bathroom? And what does he know to do in the bedroom? Yeah, no No wonder she divorced him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's used to having like a totally different body. This must be really strange. It might be that this this thing that is inhabiting him has inhabited other humans. Possibly not. I mean, from the sounds of it, no, because, you know, it, it takes him so long to get used to the mechanical aspects of being human. But it seems unlikely that this, you know, the, the, this is a repeat visit for him. That was one thing I found quite reassuring later on, that there is mention that, yes, that the, uh, the great race do have um, those that have gone forward, then come back again and can speak English or at least be able to communicate with the minds they transfer. Because otherwise, all of them to turn up suddenly going, I don't know how this body works. You'd have... Pegged, uh, pegged early on that something was wrong because of all these people having this mass occurrence throughout history. On the other hand, I mean, how many people do have neurological illnesses uh, and so on that might, you know, that might sort of mimic some of the symptoms that we're seeing here? At the start of them, probably quite a few, but then suddenly to become a master of all sciences, mathematics and so on later and have a prescient knowledge of everything that's about to come, that well, let, not so much. Let, let's just go back and explain for... for the listener, just what is happening here. So he's he's had some kind of fit or seizure. He's acting strangely when he comes round. And he then goes off and starts researching the world and, and researching old books. He goes on trips. He uh, 
He has a great interest in science and history and, the, and current events. Yeah, and also a, a strange interest in cults. And sometimes sort of talks about things that happened a really long time ago or that haven't happened yet. And people are like, how did you know that? Well, there's that wonderful moment, isn't there, where it talks about uh, him using some phrase that seemed quite jarring at the time, which comes into common parlance at some point in the 1920s. 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the, the only... Th- sort of lost opportunity I thought for Lovecraft there was that he should have actually said what the phrase was but I can just imagine Lovecraft sitting there writing it sort of thinking yeah um what 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 do ordinary people say oh I don't know I'll just <laughs> I'll just gloss over that what yeah you like us talking about you know the the latest uh you know rap music or something you know I'm really down with the kids so I know all about that stuff I'll put that in the story yo 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 exactly Matt <laughs> you've summed it up <laughs> that is how they talk <laughs> so I believe. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just say a little about what he did. He went to, uh, in 1909, he went to the Himalayas. That's quite a trip. Yeah, especially in that time. In 1911, a camel ride to Arabia? He's getting around a bit. And this, this particular thing seems to tie in a bit with Lovecraft's story, The Nameless City. Well, a lot of things in this story seem to tie in with his other works, or with the works of his uh, peers. Yeah, I mean, we see a lot of this in Lovecraft, and we, we talked about it in the other Lovecraft stories we've discussed. But I think this, more than any other, is one of the sort of grand unifying stories of the, the mythos that he was building up. I think this really is a Cthulhu mythos story. Yeah, absolutely. More, much more. It's not just mentioning the Necronomicon or something like that. It's not some, you know, just tenuous link. It really is tying a lot of these things together. 1912, an old favourite of our Scott, Spitzbergen. Bloody Spitzbergen. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, sometime back, Paul ran Walker in the Wastes for us, and the group we were playing with had it in our heads that for some reason we needed to go to Spitzbergen. Someone, some NPC had just mentioned Spitzbergen in passing, and we thought, well, obviously we need to go there. <laughs> of course, it's not actually detailed in the fucking campaign at all. Well, I think you, you could have gone there, but, you know, you were like two years before anything was going to happen. <laughs> so I seem to remember we actually ended up there, had a fight with a polar bear, wandered around for a bit and fucked off again. That was pretty much it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of polar bears in Spitzbergen. A lot. Well, there's one less now. Oh. Sorry, fewer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and of course, we get a great list of books that he uh, that he goes and researches. Uh, we get the Cult de Ghoul. We get the Vermis Mysteries. Unesprechlichen Colton. Go, go on, say that again, just for entertainment <laughs> value. <laughs> I know. It is unspeakable, isn't it? Nameless. Uh, the, um, the Book of Iban. And, of course, the Necronomicon. Yeah, this is another Lovecraft character who's read every mythos tome out there. I mean, again, but this is an alien character, because we haven't really said yet that he what he's possessed by. This will become apparent, but... Yeah, but, but it's also the fact that when he recovers from his bat of amnesia later, he goes back and retraces his steps, and, you know, Peasley himself goes back and reads all these books again yeah, when yeah. he's in his right mind. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> oh, but, of course, yes, he does. Yeah, so. for punishment. But, yeah, again, th- this is... 
not something you'd ever expect to see in a Call of Cthulhu game. You know, for a start, you know, any character who read all of those books would lose, you know, so much sanity in the process. It's not true. Oh, I should have added up how much that all was. That would be a shed load. Yeah. 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 But but also, you know, it's you know, you spend an entire Call of Cthulhu campaign trying to get hold of one of these books, and you know, he he's he's just kind of gone to the Miskatonic University Library and and sat there and read them all back to back. So in his former self, when he was possessed, apparently he finds out that he had made notes in the margins of these books. Mm. And I like the fact that on uh, Tor.com, uh, one of the reviewers there writing about this story had said, because the, the, the great race, the, the things that come forward and possess us, are they really, well, they are pretty nasty, but are they really evil as such? Oh, but, I we'll can't get, say we'll they get are. to that later, but yes, yes, they are They are possibly <laughs> the most evil thing Lovecraft's ever written And this about. is why, and I quote from Tor.com, also, the Yith really are evil. They write in the margins of rare library books. <laughs> <laughs> the library police are after them. What would you say about that, Matt? Uh, this, this is where, as much as I like the concept of the Ithian, it would be grab hold of one and smash its face into a desk and say, do can, not deface my books! You could, you could wake up, you know, or not wake up tomorrow, <laughs> find that you've been possessed, and come back next year, and somebody's like got all your role-playing books and written in all the margins. So, 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 so someone's written in the margins for your temple edition. I will find them, and I will kill them, regardless. <laughs> obviously, obviously, that won't be tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> next decade and might involve some time travel into a future eon but um yeah that could happen matt so you need to watch out for that it's the reason i was going to put i put it in a glass case unfortunately i still know where the key is if only there was some way of getting into a glass case without a key Mm. (laughs) so we've got this strange thing that's inhabited his body until 1913 i believe it is peasley uh, or the possessed Peasley, is visited by this foreign gentleman and together they have some strange device made of rods, wheels and mirrors. It's about two foot tall and about a foot wide and in some way this facilitates the uh, the dispossession of, of Peasley's body and this thing travelling back in time and Peasley re-inhabiting his, his, uh, his body. When he awakens, this visitor is gone. All of his... All of the possessed uh, person's notes have been burnt and Peasley wakes up as if from a bad dream. Well, he not only wakes up as if from a bad dream, he wakes up speaking, uh, picking up his lecture exactly where he left off oh, in mid-sentence. Right. Yes, yes, as if nothing had happened. Yeah. Which is kind of strange, but kind of strange given what he then remembers later. He remembers all the his yeah. time away. Yeah. When you said that, you just took me back to when I was a kid. I was about eight years, eight on, I think I was about eight years old, and I had operations on my teeth, and I was laid on the bed ready for the operation, and I was given a general anaesthetic, and I was talking to the nurse, and I said, you know, I've never had, um, I've never been in hospital before and had an operation. I've never had any teeth pulled out. And she picked up this glass container and shook it and said, well, you have now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I'd been out. And she got like a dozen of my teeth in a jar. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but stepping back for a moment, I really like the description of the device in this. Because, I mean, we know that these are highly advanced aliens, but they're, you know, they're, they're operating here in what, the 1910s, the, the early yeah. 1910s. 
And they're building this strange device which, you know, we can assume from the context is there to return the possessing mind back through time. And this device is obviously made up of the equipment they have at the time. And more, moreover, I mean, this is Lovecraft writing in the 1930s, before the advent of electronics and so on. So, I mean, this is a very unusual sounding device. I mean, you know, it's, it's done with mirrors and movements and rods and so on. It's almost like it's, you know, something that's designed to induce a hypnotic trance or whatever. But it is so different from what you'd expect a modern writer would write for, you know, a high tech, mm. that it comes across as even more kind of weird and alien. And I looked this up particularly when, uh, when they described the communicator device. Um, I looked it up in the Encyclopedia Cthuliana under the entry for The Great Race. I think someone along the lines who's decided to write more Yithian stories has expanded upon this by giving their interpretation of saying that the device itself could be made of anything. Um, what it is and what it looks like is irrelevant. It's its mathematical construction is what's important, that it is effectively a mental tool just given physical form, that it's the, it's the mathematics behind what it does that actually gives it its power. Because they must be able to create similar machines or machines that serve a similar function throughout the breadth of uh, existence, pretty much, from millions of years ago to millions of years in the future. So it, can't, it couldn't just rely on electronics or something, you know, of, of our 20th century. It would have to be, you know, things that they could find in, you know, prehistoric Earth or... Yeah, but, I mean, if it's, it's just designed to produce a particular effect, um, I mean... You could have quite a lot of fun, you know, creating the equivalent in different time periods. You could have a 21st century Yithian uh, creating an app on his phone to go home, for example, just, oh, nice. just because, you know, it creates the right series of flashing lights or something. Yithian yeah. phone home. <laughs> As Peasley starts to recover from this, he has certain lasting effects from it. He, for example, you know, has bad dreams, and this becomes quite an important aspect of the story as it goes on. But the other kind of almost throwaway line in there is this idea that he has an altered sense of time, the fact that, you know, all time is one age. And I, I found that to be, you know, really quite... Again, an intriguing alien concept, the fact that, you know, all of this experience has changed him so much that, you know, he at least briefly almost sees time as a Yithian would. Hmm, I'm not sure if the Yithians see time as if from the outside, though. Well, the fact that they can jump around in it and the fact yeah. that their minds are, you know, unfettered and unbound by it, you know, probably at least gives them a different perception of what time is. A lot less static than it is for us, a lot less fixed. Yeah, they're able to move around. So there's. Well, it's not just that. I mean, you know, Lovecraft makes some references later uh, to, you know, Peasley uh, reading Einstein mm. and, you know, finding in relativity certain echoes of this changed perception of time that he's got. And again, yeah, that seems to kind of point to the idea of, you know, him beginning to see time as a dimension rather than just a linear passage. Let's talk a little about the Great Race because he starts to have these dreams of. Uh, of, of well, uh, well, dreams of what was happened to him when he was possessed. Um, and these dreams, you know, we get a lot of exposition, a lot of detail about the, this. Well, it's presented as a dream, but as a reader, we know this is what happened to him. It's pretty clear. 
It's one of these stories that's really difficult to assess on that front because obviously, you know, anyone who you know, has read Call of Cthulhu, even if they haven't read this story before, is familiar with the idea of um, the great race. They know roughly what the concepts are from, you know, the Call of Cthulhu rulebook. Yes. Yeah, if they're familiar with the game, yeah, maybe, but let's... So, so, yeah, it's a very difficult story from that respect to go back and sort of see with fresh eyes. Mm. I mean, you start off knowing that this is about a man who gets possessed by an alien from the past, uh, yeah, has his mind swapped with it, and then gradually remembers what's happened to him. Yeah. It would be interesting to find someone who was completely unaware of all that and get their impressions on you know, the, the unfolding of the details. Because I experienced a certain degree of frustration in reading this story, because, you know, I knew what was going to happen and it was just, it felt like there were so many hints and gradual uh, unfoldings and, you know, it was step forward into the narrative and then step back and so on. Sort of, yeah, all right, for God's sake, we all know what's happening here. Just bloody say it. I was reading it again today and making notes, you know, for this. And there are some passages in there where... You can't really make notes because one well, your notes end up being longer than what is actually written because it's so rich and so detailed in, in the way it describes various aspects and it'll mention like several things in, in one sentence. It's like reading an Encyclopedia Britannica or, or something mm -hmm. like that. And indeed, in some of the notes that Joshi makes, Lovecraft did draw on the Encyclopedia Britannica for quite a lot of this stuff, and it's like he's regurgitating a fictional encyclopedia of the great race, um, which makes it challenging, quite dense material. But if you kind of take it slowly and really kind of think about the stuff in, in, the, in the Cthulhu mythos and, and the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game context, there's a hell of a lot of stuff in here. I, I, I was thinking less about that and more about the early parts of the stories where, you know, the story rather, where Peasley is hinting at what's happened to him and it's the gradual sort of, you know, here are bits of my dreams but I don't really want to think about it and so, and so on. And it's some time before we start getting to the bits we're about to discuss about the, the descriptions it of his, his, is, his yeah, memories yeah. of, of what happened to him. You know, the, the point I was trying to make is I think if he came to the story afresh and, you know, knew nothing about what it was about or about the great race then that might actually be more satisfactory. But, you know, certainly going back... You know, <laughs> but if you're listening to this, that ain't going to happen, yeah, is it? Yeah, it, not, it, so. No, no, if you're listening to this, we have completely destroyed the story for you. I, the other thing I found particularly, not impenetrable about it, but very much a barrier to entry, was the fact it did read like an essay. Mm. Um, if I'd gone into this afresh and not known what the great race was, I don't think I'd have finished it. Had you read it before, Matt, or not? No, no. No, but I knew it from... From, um, from other yeah, contexts sure. to say what a Yithium was, what it did, mainly because I've read the entry in Encyclopedia Cthulhu, and I don't know how many times. Sure, but no, to read to read that story fresh off the bat, I doubt I would have finished it. It was so dull. Yeah, I I think this is. As you say, one of Lovecraft's more challenging stories. I mean, Lovecraft very rarely wrote what you could describe as a traditional narrative. His stories are almost all written in this sort of dry, removed academic style. Or at least, you know, his larger stories are. And I think this is pretty much the epitome of that. Mm -hmm. I, it, it doesn't have sort of the, the disjointed, discursive structure of something like The Call of Cthulhu. But it does feel so removed from the action that it's very difficult to get caught up in it. It's interesting to read as a description of the events, and like you say, it's an, almost an encyclopedia entry about you know, this prehistory of Earth. But as a story, it's not awfully compelling. 
Peasley has these dreams and theorises about what the great race were and he even um, contacts, he even reads some other accounts of people who have been possessed in a similar way and so on. So let's just, we won't regurgitate everything he says because there's a hell of a lot of it, but let's just try and put in a nutshell what the great race actually, you know, what the great race are. They possess one race after another, just the same as they possess Peasley in the 20th century. But back 150 million years ago, they're in these cone-shaped bodies with these living in these strange cities on Earth. And they're able to cast their minds forward and cast their consciousness forward into other bodies and possess them. Well, it's not just possessing them. I mean, this is the important thing. They, they, they don't just overwhelm the consciousness that's there. They exchange places with it. The consciousness they reach out to is then dragged back through time into the body of the possessing Yithian. Rather than our rambling attempt to actually describe what the Yithians are, let's actually take a look at what Lovecraft said. They seem to be enormous iridescent cones about 10 feet high and 10 feet wide at the base, and made up of some ridgy, scaly, semi-elastic matter. From their apexes projected four flexible cylindrical members, each a foot thick and of a ridgy substance like that of the cones themselves. These members were sometimes contracted almost to nothing, and sometimes extended to any distance up to about ten feet. Terminating two of them were enormous claws or nippers. At the end of a third were four red trumpet-like appendages. The fourth terminated in an irregular yellowish globe some two feet in diameter and having three great dark eyes ranged along its central circumference. Surmounting this head were four slender grey stalks bearing flower-like appendages, whilst from its nether side dangled eight greenish antennae or tentacles. The great base of the central cone was fringed with a rubbery grey substance which moved the whole entity through expansion and contraction. And this is really one of the strangest descriptions of an alien that Lovecraft's come up with. I mean, it's this and the elder things from you know, uh, the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, I he think... describes those in a similar level of detail, doesn't he? But in both cases, I mean, one of the things that's almost quite disquieting about them is we're used to all the, almost all the creatures that we come across in our world being pretty well symmetrical. Mm. And there is a lack of symmetry to the description of these things that makes them seem all the more alien. And a, and a great level of detail. I mean, he describes these... So we've got this conical thing with these four tubes that come out of the top. They can extend and contract, so they can reach up to about 10 feet away. So there's this ball on the end of one of these, which kind of equates to its head. It's got eyes on it. Um, that, that can reach 10 feet away up into the air or down, and these nippers that, that can do the same. It's just a remarkable thing. So if you're a human being, and you're transposed into this body, what the hell would that be like? Because you've got no arms, you've got no legs, you've got these, these four limbs on top of your head. Well, and also from the description that Peasley gives later of how he tried to control these bodies, because one of the things that it transpires that the Ithians demand of the people they swap places with is that they write histories of where they're from. He talks about his experiences doing this, and the, you, know, you think of these nippers that are described as being hands, but those aren't the things that they use for, uh, for fine-tuning, it's these kind of little appendages that grow out of their heads. Yeah, the kind of crab claw nipper things are used for talking. They clack those together for communication. But I think the important point is here, this is, you know, we maybe expect this to be a horror story, but actually he's transposed back into the, the body of the uh, great race. And 
he isn't mistreated there. He's treated fine. He's he's allowed to go on journeys with them around their around their cities and around the world. He's uh, allowed to read books in their libraries. He's allowed to talk with other um, people, you know, that have been possessed like him in in similar bodies. But at the same time, a lot of what the great race do is absolutely horrifying. I mean, there's the whole, obviously, the you know, disruption to Peasley's life, the destruction of his family life, the fact that, you know, for many years he thinks himself mad. This is a huge thing to begin with, but that's a drop in the ocean compared to one of the, some of the things that they do. So there's the whole idea, for example, that some of them, uh, when they find that they're terminally ill, will, you know, swap places with some unwitting host in the future, steal their body and leave the consciousness there in their body to die back in the distant past, and this alien body just confused. And it does talk about how the, the rest of the great race do try to tend to the person, you know, or the, the mind in this body as best as possible. But it's still a horrifying thing to do. But we haven't said the most horrific, well, perhaps the most horrific thing, is that these cone-shaped bodies, they're not the great race. They're just another race that evolved, presumably evolved on Earth, you know, 150-odd million years ago. They were existing on Earth quite happily, living their little cone-shaped body lives. And then this distant race from the planet Yith, you know, far, far away, they were in trouble over there. So they did this whole thing of looking out for somewhere to go for a permanent holiday and came and, you know, possessed all of these cone-shaped bodies. Yep, and, well, not just possess them, again. Again, you know, through the minds across, you know, So you get this entire race that has their minds thrown across to an alien planet in bodies they don't understand, in, you know, in dire peril, and obviously just left to die. I mean, that's genocide. Yeah, yeah. And the Yithians do it again in the course of the story. You know, we, we discover that, that, you know, because of their ability to see through time, or at least experience time non-linearly, they can see that their civilization is doomed. So again, you know, they, they jump forward in time to... Millions of years in our future, when we have been supplanted by our insect overlords! <laughs> I, I think they take a trip via Venus or something to the fungi that live there, and then they jump into the... Oh, we do, we do get on to, to other planets, but ultimately, yeah, they're going to they're gonna possess these cockroach uh, overlords that will... Not overlords, these cockroach <laughs> beings that will, you know, be on Earth in millions of years' time, and they'll be the sentient kind of dominant race. But the great thing is, they're not threatening mankind. They're not going to say, oh, we're going to, you know, the story doesn't say, oh, mankind's going to be wiped out by these things. No, because mankind is going to, you know, it's evolved, it's going to die out, and it's just a, you know, a sideline in, in history, and is of no consequence to the great race that I can see in this story, because they were there 150 million years ago, and they're going to be there millions of years in the future in these insects, and we're in irrelevance. Yeah. I, again, yeah, you know, this is a a very good example of what Lovecraft was trying to do in a lot of his stories, which is yeah, you know, bring horror about through the irrelevance of mankind in this larger scope, in this case of time, and the entities that master it. Yeah, as you say, we're we're nothing to them. This kind of makes me wonder why the great race are bothering to possess members of the human race. Is it, the only, I can only think of two explanations. One is that they feel kind of like they're zookeepers and they're studying all their all their uh, all the things that they're kind of looking after all the things they've got in their metaphorical zoo you know of time so you know they look at us they look at maybe a person from ancient china they look at some guy that's going to be around in 3000 years time and they get us to put down all our knowledge just for a sort of a, a matter of interest 
Yeah, they, they seem to be academics. But the other thing is, do they really understand the universe any better than us? So are they just trying to piece together all these bits of knowledge from various civilizations towards some greater aim? Because obviously they still live in fear. They, the story, we haven't touched on it yet, but there are things beneath trap doors in some of the buildings 150 million years ago that they fear. They haven't conquered everything. They still have problems and fears and, you know, they're not masters of the universe. They can jump through time, but they haven't mastered everything. So is this what they're trying to do? Are they trying to find some, you know, secret arcane knowledge? You know, like get, getting the possessed Peasley to go and read the Necronomicon and various um, oh, books oh, and so on? Oh, that may be a bit reductive. I mean, if you think of them as, you know, intelligent creatures, I mean, that would be like asking what the overall goal of mankind is. And, the, you know, they, you know the, the answer is that it's a very, you know... <laughs> fragmented uh, divisive thing you know it, it, to ascribe one single motivation to an entire race here may not make sense though there could be all sorts of different things in different areas of interest and so on that that would be important i don't equate these with mankind though because they seem to act as a group when they jump through time it seems like the whole lot of them have a consensus and they go yeah, but that's just manning the lifeboats. That doesn't mean that they act as one unit before then. I mean, that said, you know, he, he does describe their, their society as being fascist, so I guess there is a lot of unity amongst them. I'd pick up on what you said about them being fascists. This occurred yes. to me today that, A, they're, they're involved in genocide. It talks about them working kind of eugenics and filtering out or killing off weak specimens of their own race if they're born infirm or somehow inferior. Uh, they, they kill those off quite readily. No. And what are they called? They're called the Great Race. <laughs> if that isn't kind of, you know, Nazi, Ubermensch type stuff, then, then what is? They, they do seem to typify that. Yeah, well, admittedly, this was written about the same time as I think Lovecraft wrote that infamous letter where he was talking about how much he liked Hitler. Yeah, and Hitler was just coming to power around then. So um, well, he'd been in power for two years. Yeah, a couple yeah. of years, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it does seem to be a few uh, parallels there. But I mean, that said, I mean, you talk about the eugenics aspect of it. I mean, eugenics at the time was quite a respectable topic of discussion. I mean, it wasn't until you know people saw the horrors of applied eugenics at the hands of the Nazis that public sentiment towards it changed. But a lot of intellectuals at the time thought that you know that this was actually the answer to a lot of mankind's problems. Peasley, of course, is not the only guest amongst the great race. No, indeed, there's a whole bunch of people that, uh, well, people and other beings that they have uh, possessed and swapped bodies with. Yeah, which this is one of the bits that did I did like about the story in that you can see the hooks that lead into other Lovecraft stories portraying the, the wider breadth of the history of the world and how it ties in with stuff that he's mentioned, even if only tangentially in a lot of stories beforehand. Well, not just Lovecraft. I mean, he makes a couple of references to Robert E. Howard's stories, one to Clark Ashton Smith. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, this is, this is good scattergun stuff here. Hmm. To pick a few examples at random, we have a 12th century Florentine monk. A real party animal. Mm -hmm. Well, who can say? Maybe he is. <laughs> and then there's Cromyar, a Sumerian chief, uh, who is obviously tied in with, well, you're grinning at me like a loon. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Conan. Yes. <laughs> yeah. By mighty Crom, yes, you're yeah. right. <laughs> and, you know, by that we're meaning Arnie, aren't we? 
There yes. is there is another. That's what we're talking about. Well, yes, absolutely, Matt. Of course, yeah. that's what we're talking about. Arnie. Yeah. Who else? Scott's, could we a, big, Scott's a big fan of the the original movie. You can tell by <laughs> if only you could see the look on his face. <laughs> if looks could kill. Crom. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I didn't hate the first film. Uh, I think it's it's fairly entertaining as a film. It's just shit as a Conan adaptation. <laughs> oh, it's mal. Anyway, it, it anyway, com- it comes up with such wonderful lines of "Oh, just another snake cult." How can you not like that? <laughs> like I said. Anyway, <laughs> next pick one, Matt. One of my favourites from the list, Yang Li, a philosopher from the cruel empire of Shan Chan, which is to come in five thousand AD. Uh, previously mentioned by Lovecraft in his story Beyond the Wall of Sleep. There are a fair number of references to Beyond the Wall of Sleep in the Shadow After Time, aren't there? Uh, that's the only one I can think of directly. I can't. Oh, we've got Sagha. I'm thinking. I'm. I'm too crumb now. Gesundheit. We've also got Sugaha, or however one pronounces it, uh, a being from the star-headed vegetable carnivores of Antarctica, an elder thing mm-hmm. from uh, beyond the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. At the Mountains of Madness, even. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and possibly the only time we actually see the name of one of them. I think so, yes. Mm. Well, they actually converse, don't they? So uh, so the, the thing is, Peasley, in his cone-shaped body, gets to to hang out with all these guys and chat to them and they all, you know, they all have a pretty good time together as far as I could see. They go off and travel around the world together and they travel together in airships and in, he describes as, well, he he talks about nuclear-powered vehicles. These could be nuclear-powered submarines. Mm. That ain't prescient, I don't know what is. Exactly. (laughs) On, On roads that are like 200 foot wide and there's... Buildings and strange animals and uh, all sorts of stuff that he kind of does a very broad brush uh, description of. But there's there's a whole world of stuff here that he just brushes the surface of. Yeah, and I, I think you made the point last time, or you were going to make the point, that this isn't really a horror story in a lot of respects. Uh, and this is certainly one of the bits of it that's very much not a horror story. And this is I mean, not quite an adventure because it's too dry for that but it's it's exploration it's a sense of wonder not horror yeah definitely yeah i mean i, th- I think um, there's a lot of appeal in actually being taken over by one of the great race going back there and meeting these people from other parts of time that you'd never have the opportunity to meet otherwise yeah i mean if they weren't you know genocide or you know uh, fascists who practiced eugenics they'd be pretty nice guys you know there's a few other name checks in here which are quite interesting uh, for example, the reptile people of Fable Volusia. I mean, this again comes out of Robert E. Howard, but it's then the serpent people that we see in Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. We get a nod to the holy abominable Chochos. Who uh, were an invention of August Ehrlich at the time, if I remember correctly. And ultimately, the arachnid denizens of Earth's last age. These are the, uh, the beetle creatures that the great race will eventually go and uh, take over. And there's a Clark Ashton Smith reference here as well to the furry pre-human Hyperborean worshippers of South Ogua. Oh, yes, the Vormis. Mm. Mm. It doesn't name them as such, but yeah. At around this point, he does mention what was hiding under the trapdoors. Uh, these strange, what does he describe them as? An elder race of half-polypus, utterly alien entities. These are the things that are trapped down behind these, beneath these basalt pillars. I think they built the basalt pillars. Mm-hmm. And the cities. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't think that's ever quite stated, is it? I mean, they certainly occupy them, and the Great Race shun them for that reason. 
Certainly in a lot of the periphery reading I've done around it, it's that they are attributed to... It does appear yes. to attribute them to... Yeah, I was reading it again. It does appear to appear okay. to put the, the basalt city to those guys who aren't named as flying polyps. No, they're called... Confusingly, they're called elder things in the story. That is a little <laughs> confusing, yes. And not only is Peasley, you know, named his son the same as him, uh, Lovecraft uses the name of another monster. Yeah. Yeah, obviously the creatures in Antarctica and at the Mountains of Madness he refers to as elder things there. These polypus creatures, which are obviously very different, not just from the different physical description, but because we've seen the Antarctican elder things referenced you know, a few paragraphs earlier, as something obviously quite different. So these things, you know, even though they're called the same name, are obviously not the same creatures. And they're described in really quite alarming terms as being of a kind of matter that's not really of our world, uh, of being absolutely you know, ineffable, inscrutable, and just so horrifying that you know, the great race just consider them to be you know, the worst possible thing. But they could be destroyed by certain forms of electrical energy. And it's, uh, it's discussed that the great race of Yith have these, well, basically kind of electrical guns they used to defend themselves. Not much is described, but there's there's some hint at that. So Which... basically big bug zappers. I guess so. I remember getting hold of a Yithian lightning gun in Masters of the Didn't end well for me. <laughs> the name that's been attached to these things, Flying Polyps, I'm pretty sure is just an invention of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, isn't it? I think so, unless another author picks up on them and gives them that name. Because um, they're not really named here. I, was gonna say, I can't think off offhand that I've read any story where they do appear other than this. They seem to be a staple of the Cull of Cthulhu beastery, but they don't, as far as I'm aware, appear in any other source material. But, I mean, they're an essential part of Call of Cthulhu, and they appear in the main rulebook, but they're not a monster that gets used very often. I guess partly because they tend to be in fairly inaccessible places, they're pretty rare, and also they're deadly. Incredibly deadly. Yeah, they're mm. not something an investigator can ever fight. And also, you know, as a keeper, the one thing that would really put me off using these more than anything else is the bloody rules that go along with them. Oh, that wind attack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you need to sit down there with a calculator and work all that out, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I kind of reworked it for 7th edition and simplified it a bit, but I kind of wanted to keep the, the spirit of the, the previous edition in and, and kind of kept some of that in. But man, it is some complex stuff. Oh, you might as well just have a little warning of the text saying fun stops here. <laughs> In one of his notes in the back of the book, Joshi does make a link uh, to the Call of Cthulhu story uh, in which Lovecraft notes that there were legends of a hidden lake unglimpsed by mortal sight in which dwelt a huge formless white polypus thing with luminous eyes. Whether this is one of those things that has survived down the, the ages to, to crop up in this Louisiana swamp, who knows? But I mean, that's it's just mentioned in, as a background note in uh, Call of Cthulhu. It's, it's kind of by the by, it's one line. That's, that is somewhat strange in how they're depicted then, because I remember from the rule book, uh, one of my favourite illustrations from uh, from 5th edition was the kind of the glimmering light shining through the flying polyp that shows it very much definitely has a series of eyes and mouths. Yet in the text here it states that their senses did not include that of sight. So why the eye? Ah. These things are not ours to question that. And who mm. says that just because it has a superficial resemblance to an eye, that's what the organ does? Mm. Could be fooling you. 
Oh, well, that was me putting my place. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to Peasley and his, uh, his great adventures. Well, he's decided that all these dreams he's having, they're just dreams. None of this really happened, did it? Yeah, I, this is... I mean, it's, it's a very understandable and relatable part of the story, but at the same time, I don't know, I find it quite frustrating in that... I mean, it's almost like... Lovecraft is going out of his way to take any narrative steam that he might accidentally have built up in his discourse here and just quash it quickly before the readers get too excited. You can't have enjoyment while reading this, damn it! This is an essay! <laughs> but we kind of know as readers that we know what's going on. And soon enough, so does he, because he gets a letter from a mining engineer in Australia. The mining engineer describes some of the carvings that they've seen on blocks out in the desert uh, because Peasley has published some of this, as Torren will explain in his song, in a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so he this guy writes to Peasley out of the blue, and, you know, it's like, come to the outback, we've got ancient blocks. Well, ancient blocks with the kind of symbols on them that you described in your, your peer-reviewed journal, which is particularly eerie. One quote that I did like from the Australian uh, mining engineer was... As a mining engineer, I have some knowledge of geology and can tell you that these blocks are so ancient they frighten me. Which makes me think, you know, if that were a player character, we should be asking for a geology role. You made it, now a sanity role. Yeah. Clearly. Um, this rock is really old. This rock will drive you mad. <laughs> But again, I mean, that's actually quite an interesting thing because it goes back to, I think, what I was saying a little earlier about the whole idea of the scope of time or the very kind of panorama of time that's being presented here and the fact that we're over this one tiny little blip. Uh, it is this sanity-shattering revelation of our insignificance in this. And that's almost sort of what's being hinted at here mm. uh, with the engineer. It's the, the, the fact that, you know, he's... Obviously, you know, has some background in geology. You know, it, the, the fact that rocks are really old isn't going to be a revelation to him. But the idea that this indicates something that was constructed, something that had writing on it that is so, so, so much older than mankind, that is actually a pretty terrifying thing. Not just terrifying in terms of, you know, these are monsters or aliens or anything like that, but terrifying in terms of, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, we don't really matter. You see, you say that's terrifying, and I think that's wondrous. That opens up a whole mystery to be explored and to be answered. Yes, and it wouldn't inherently imply that we are somehow belittled by that or inferior to that. It's just that there was some race of ancient times of which everything has been obliterated apart from these blocks, and he's found them. I would have thought, as you say, Matt, I would have thought it was really exciting. Well, particularly at this period of history when the story was being written, bear in mind that you know, it, most people's views are very humanocentric that, you know, people see humanity as being the centre of creation, the centre of the universe, you know, they, uh, the sun goes around the earth, you know, we are uh, the centre of creation, God created everything for us. And they're uh, wrong! <laughs> but it's, you know, then to throw in little things like this, that it's sort of, well, actually, no, you're, you know, little more than a, you know, a shit stain on, on the great rug of history. I think what happened was he found the blocks in, in the desert and he was, like, really excited, this is amazing! And then he remembered that he's an H.P. Lovecraft fictional character 
and he, he just like lost his mind because he knew that nothing good could possibly come of this. Sorry, I've got to get back in character now. <laughs> and this is where Joshi points out that Lovecraft drew on Encyclopedia Britannica quite a lot for his research. Uh, and um, when it came to legends that Lovecraft quotes here and the descriptions of the place uh, and the people and so on, uh, he was drawing from the Encyclopedia Britannica. And this is like a modern-day writer just copying and pasting stuff in from Wikipedia, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I think I, pretty much. Yeah. And the style of his writing, as I said earlier, I think kind of reflects that approach, really. Oh, boy. Like, none of us have done that, honestly. <laughs> do you, do you want to confess now? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> well, thinking of expeditions... Um, even though it's not going, it's going south rather than uh, rather than all the way down to the South Pole. But it does bring back a character we've seen before. Mm. Oh yes, yes, our old friend, Professor William Dyer. He doesn't do a lot there, does he? No, <laughs> he sits in the desert and makes no entries in his journal. Yeah, which is probably the best thing to do, to be honest. I'm but, not going to look at this. I will be fine if I sit here and do nothing. But he's but like, this... I was in the last campaign. I've hardly got any sanity left. Why have you made me come on this one? I'm just going to look at my book around the fire. I'm not. I'm not looking at that. <laughs> but this is also a very Lovecraftian thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, he makes this. Very brief connection to another story. He brings this character in. It's sort of, yes, I, I, I've mentioned him now. I don't need to do anything more with him. Let's get on with the rest of this stuff. Yeah. It might even be an, ed um, an editing error where it's, he suddenly added him in and thought, oh, no, hang on a minute. There could be more interesting stuff here. I better take that out and just forgot about it. That's why he doesn't <laughs> do anything later. I was looking at the dates because Lovecraft is meticulous in mentioning the dates. So on March the 28th, they leave Boston. Uh, they arrive in uh, Australia at the dig site on June the 3rd. So that's taken, what, just over a month? No, just over two months, in fact. Yep. Yeah, because we often wonder about travel times in uh, when we're playing Call of Cthulhu. So that's from Boston to the Outback, two months. I'm using the Outback as a generic term. I hope that's acceptable for the location. Well, it's, it's somewhere in Western Australia, isn't it? Not too far from the coast. Okay. Is that the Outback, Scott? I... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> if you're Australian and you listen to the show, please forgive us our ignorance and feel free to write us abusive emails or comments on, on, on our shiny new forum. Yeah. And, 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 and tell us exactly how wrong we are. It's about another eight days and he finds big basalt blocks. Where does he find them? Under a gibbous moon. Under the gibbous moon. But there is no other type of moon. What are you, what are you talking about? No, there is. There's, uh, I think he talks about the bleeding moon later he makes lots of references to the moon with various adjectives in this same story he's breaking the mold because moons are lonely without adjectives <laughs> and on the 17th the wind blows down the tents and he flees and then just three more days later so there's quite a lot of time passing but there's not much account of what actually goes on during this period because when when i first read it i thought all these things happened almost on consecutive days but looking again at the dates, it's just, you know, they're yeah, quite big takes gaps a few of time. Weeks. Whereas if you were playing this as a game, they'd have got there on day one, they'd have found the thing that night, and the day two, they'd be running back to Boston, or they'd all be dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, just as an aside, you know, remembering that we are a gaming podcast and just talking about gaming, I mean, it's not just me then, is it? I mean, quite often I will write a scenario... And I'll have events that go on over the course of a few days. Uh, I'll, I'll put together a timeline. When I run it, 
do the players ever wait around and have any downtime? Do they do their characters ever sleep? No. They, as soon as they're engaged with it, it's just they they they're like speed fueled engines that rush through the scenario. Uh, and yeah, okay, something's supposed to be happening, but no, no, no. It's four a.m. We're still doing this. Oh, it's five a.m. Let's go around, uh, wake up all the people we want to talk to because obviously they'll be home at the moment. And you just never ever get to the bloody second day, do you? Sounds like you're making the mistake of letting them have fun, though, Scott. <laughs> I looked at it more like my uh, my regular group turns into they all suddenly become Liam Neeson um, they all have a very particular set of skills and they will not stop they will find the plot they are looking for and they will kill it <laughs> they will keep going <laughs> and they will have a death ray <laughs> <laughs> that was a very weird game of bunnies and burrows <laughs> <laughs> but then he mentions the wind blowing down the tents one night as this, this strange occurrence. And then he jumps to July the 20th, a few days later, when he's travelled to Perth with his son, Wingate. Uh, and um, he, he... That will never stop being funny. No. <laughs> and he spends several days in, in Perth before sailing off back to Boston. And he, te- he then tells us, I guess while he's on the boat... He's recounting what happened on the night of the 17th, those few, few days earlier. So he keeps jumping around, and now finally he's telling us what happened in retrospect again. Yeah, I, I mean, this is again, you know, fairly classic Lovecraft. I mean, you know, for a moment we're in danger of actually being immersed in events. And then it's sort of, oh no, okay, we, we've just rushed to the end of that. And then I'll tell you a little dribs and drabs what happened a few days ago. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no sense of being immersed in the action. Action. Well, what, what the, is... I mean, the thing is, what happens from this point onwards does actually have some action in it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's, the, you know, he's going exploring. He's going into this lost uh, set of ruins. He's encountering monsters. He's encountering secrets that have been lost for millennia. He 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 feels the wind uh, coming up from down below, and he figures. You know, he, he deduces that one of these things has broken out. I think that's that's the uh, the implication, and he even finds one of the broken trap doors at one point and leaps over it and falls and hurts himself. I think. Yeah. Um, so the, there's stuff happening. It's just not portrayed in a very exciting manner, but it's there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we're building up to something big here. The revelation that actually made me smile. <laughs> well, I don't want to miss out the bit where he casts his mind back to meeting an entity. All that, all that time ago. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and this, uh, he says, uh, in that hall, the captive mind of an incredible entity, a half plastic denizen of the hollow interior of an unknown transplutonian planet, 18 million years in the future, we said a lot goes on in each sentence, it sure does, had kept a certain thing which it had modelled from clay. Hmm. What's that all about? He throws these things in with no explanation. So there's some like plutonian being sat in there making pots or is it like wilcox from the call of cthulhu has he modeled you know something that has been cast into his mind from the dreams uh, dreams of cthulhu is it cthulhu is. there at that time i don't know but it is a horror in clay yeah or is it just yithian art therapy but all through this story there are these like sentences which contain so much information like that one which are, uh, you know, they're just dropped in and then there'll be another one and then there'll be another one and then there'll be another one. And there's, mm. the only link is that they all happen to be there at the same time. 
One of the other nice things about this section is he's giving the descriptions of going through the, this kind of crumbling, abandoned, destitute city, but he's doing it now in a human body, so obviously everything is, is huge in comparison to his memories of it. And I think Lovecraft actually does quite a good job of portraying that sort of dissonance in size there. You know, the, these the sloping passages, the, you know, these wide you know, and, and high um, tunnels, uh, and particularly when he gets around to the library itself and the various drawers or, or um, safes in which they kept the different cylinders, and the fact that he's having to clamber up them now and, and pull these huge drawers open, whereas before it would be like a human just opening you know, a cupboard door or a, a chest of drawers. And he recognises things as he goes round, and he remembers that, you know, before, as you were saying, Scott, he, before the scale felt different, but you know, he's still recognising the things. This is 150 million years later, I, I hasten to remind us. Um, but relative for him, because it's only a few years. Yes. No, just thinking about how little things had changed. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know much about geology and so on, but has not the Earth's crust kind of changed a lot more than, than we're portraying here? Apparently, Australia's special. Yeah. That's fine then, that explains it. Now there's the, well it isn't in italics, but it, you kind of feel it should be, the, 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 the revelation. But even Lovecraft undermines this revelation. He says, It has been hard for me, literally, to set down that crucial revelation, though no reader can have failed to guess it. And it's like, yeah, I can see what you're going to say in a few lines, because you've almost said it several times. Um, it's... It's not going to be any great surprise now. It, it, it not, is a willful anticlimax. It's not really about the surprise. I mean, often his italicised final lines, we call them revelations, but often they're not really revelations, are they? They're... No, but there's still attempts at them. But this is almost him going out of his way to subvert his own tropes. I'm not sure they are attempts at revelations in the way that we might see by some other authors. I think it's more a... a, a a case of emphasis really it's like we kind of we feel like we almost know what's going to happen and we kind of feel a bit clever for anticipating it and it kind of confirms that so, um, so, so emphasizes it so basically you're saying lovecraft is dan brown i knew that was coming i oh. knew that was coming <laughs> i've not read dan brown so i have to bow to you on that one uh, guys but yes you're right i mean these are less revelations and more confirmations are we actually going to say what it is <laughs> well, no, no, we're emulating Lovecraft, of yeah. course. No, no listener can fail to have guessed. Yeah, he goes up, opens the box, and draws out the uh, the, the the manuscript on which he worked so many millions of years ago, and there is the the writing, the recordings that he made when he was in his cone body, written in his own handwriting in English. Okay, listeners, if you haven't fainted at that revelation, <laughs> you, you, don't, you can't really call yourself a Lovecraft fan. Well, the thing is, as I said, he telegraphed the hell out of this. It's no revelation when it comes up. But it's actually a really cool idea. Yeah, and, it doesn't matter. It, it sounds almost like we're belittling it, but we're not. It's actually a very cool uh, kind of turn of events. It's just handled in a very bizarre way. I think it might be in his commonplace book, but certainly Joshi mentions the quote... Uh, in which Lovecraft, years before, had 
had a thought or maybe a dream which he'd recorded of a guy doing just this but it was just just a couple of lines sort of saying oh what about if a guy and it's a bit like we might have scenario ideas you know oh what if you know this and this happened what if a guy found a really old document and there was his own handwriting and that's just a cool concept but then you have to kind of go back and retrofit all this stuff to make it you know to embellish it and that's kind of what he's done in this story yeah. i've played at least one game where it's happened to me before and thought, okay, we know where it's going, but how the hell are we going to get there? Oh, as a player right. character. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Quite can be quite difficult to set those things up as a as a keeper or a GM. To you're kind of asking for trouble, really, aren't you? When you do that. <laughs> how how can we them. avoid this? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I published a scenario that did exactly that, and that's that's pretty much the whole fundament of it. Okay. Well, I'm a player character. Chop off my hands, quick, <laughs> so I can never write this document. The thing is, you realise now that because you've lost your hands, that you naturally evolved to write it with your feet. Yeah. And this is why your handwriting well, is you somewhat You get put into another body that does have hands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you come back into your own body with no hands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to write that manuscript without any hands? <laughs> Before we go, we have some new Patreon backers to thank. Yep, thanks very much to our new Patreon backers, Nick Townsend. Thank you, Nick. Indeed, thank you very much, Nick. And also, thank you very much to Dwayne Woolley. Yeah, big thanks, Dwayne. Yeah, thank you, Dwayne. And thank you to Corey Welch. Cheers, Corey. Indeed, thanks very much, Corey. That's all for today, but come back next time when we'll be talking about what you can take from the shadow out of time and put into your game. Until then, it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com mm -hmm.